0: Welcome to session four of our new members class, Exploring Christ Community Church. And um, I want to begin with uh, the scripture, 1 John four nineteen that says, We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the fact that you first loved us, and because of that, We love, we love you, we love others, we love our brothers and sisters, but we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, we thank you so much that 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 is the case. Thank you that you first loved us. I pray that this session would ignite our faith in you and deepen our faith even more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the session here is called Our Response to the Gospel. And the question in Acts chapter sixteen, verse thirty, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Um, is a great question. And it's asked again in Acts chapter two as well. Uh, what shall we do? Um, they they plead with uh the apostles when Peter finishes his sermon. Um first sermon on the day of Pentecost. And um, the answer to this question, what must I do to be saved, is both simple and complex. It's simple as the answer, repent and believe the good news. But it's complex because it involves not only our actions, but a whole series of God's actions that are ultimately behind our response. Let's look at uh, point one here, chosen by God. God acts so that we can act. Uh, Romans eight twenty nine and 30 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Before any man is justified by faith, God has already done a good deal of work in his life. Uh, these works are here classified as foreknowledge, predestination, and calling. Let's look at that first word from Romans 8, 29 and 30, those whom he foreknew. Let's look at foreknowledge. Uh, the, the Greek word for foreknowledge means more than simply to know before. Um, It is not a word of intellectual knowledge, but a word of relationship. The Amplified Bible translates the word as aware and loved beforehand. Um, Another interpretation of it is that you're known and loved beforehand. Uh, Foreknowledge, then, is God's actively setting his affection upon you as one of his chosen people. Um, it's a very precious thing. Um, and as I mentioned, it doesn't simply just deal with God being aware of facts about you um, before they happen. He is aware of that um, you know in the sense of you know God knows the beginning from the end, He knows everything um, and but it but it's talking more about as Jeremiah one talks about when God says to Jeremiah, um, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you, uh, you were known by God and loved beforehand before you were even born. Um, this is how God, uh, knows us. He foreknows us in that precious way. And, um, I hope that gives some insight into the word foreknowledge that is precious to you. You were known and loved beforehand by God as you look at your life right now as a Christian. To look back and to be able to know that, that he loved you before you were in your mother's womb and he knew you. um, It's just a precious, precious truth. We love because he first loved us. Let's look at this second point, B, predestination. Um, To predestinate means to decree or foreordain the circumstances and destiny of people according to God's sovereign will. A related scriptural term, specifically referring to salvation, is election. Election is God's eternal choice of particular individuals for his special favor, independent of human choice or merit. And... um, In simple terms, it means this, that from eternity, God has chosen who will be saved. The Bible never explains the basis for God's choice of any individual. It only reveals that the choice is not based on anything that a person does or does not do, but on God's gracious love towards that individual. And these passages of scripture here, are excellent in relation to understanding predestination and election. If you read Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 for yourself, and I'd encourage you to do so, and then another vital chapter is Romans chapter 9, 10 through 16, you'll, you'll learn a lot. And, and I want to let you know as we look at these things too, just pastorally, we want you to feel free to just ask us questions that you have. And you know, one of the things about these doctrines here, foreknowledge, predestination, election, they are deep. Truths and um, at times, you know, just even upon hearing them, you know, Christians are are really uh, affected. They're gripped. Uh, sometimes there's Christians who immediately embrace them and cherish them and and take great comfort from them. Other times, Christians upon hearing them um, are are disturbed and wow, what does this mean? And I just want to let you know that we are here for you to help you as you study God's word in relation to these uh, truths, and we, we want you to really be able to come to a place of peace to where these doctrines of grace, as they're called, really comfort you um, and really bring just peace to your soul. But, you know, they they upon first hearing sometimes can be like, wow, uh, I never really thought of it like that, and especially newer Christians. And we want to let you know as pastors, we understand that's a process, and and we want to... Uh, Just let you know that we love you and we're here with you through that process. So please ask us whatever questions you got. We'd love to talk with you more about the doctrine of predestination, foreknowledge, election, as they uh, are revealed to us in God's word. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9 says, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. We see that emphasis there that God didn't save us because of anything that we had done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Um, Titus 3 says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Again, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And we learn in Ephesians 1 that that we are uh, chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, and the, the motive behind that is uh, that it would be for the praise of his glorious grace. That phrase, for the praise of his glorious grace, repeats numerously throughout Ephesians that, um God desires his glorious grace to be praised. And this is why he designed salvation in this way. It really leaves man no room for boasting um, in his own merit. But can, he can only boast in the Lord. He can only boast in the cross. He can only boast in Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And one, no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we see an important principle there in that verse of Scripture that the Son chooses to reveal the Father to us, and uh, our eyes, by nature, are really blind to the truth, blind to understand faith in Christ, and to understand Christ and what he's done, and God opens up our eyes to, to see himself. And without him opening up our eyes, there's no way we would ever come to see the Father and how wonderful he is that he sent his son to die on the cross for sinners like us and rise from the dead in order to save us. Look at this passage in John 6, uh, 44, and then in verse 65 as well. These phrases here are powerful and and really help us to understand, um, you know, who took the initiative in our salvation. It really was God. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, Jesus said, draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, at the last day. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So there's two phrases, the Father enabling us, the Father drawing us. Um, it's important for us to know that um, we were drawn by grace to the Lord, um, by his sovereign initiative, his tender mercy. And without his grace, we, we never would have come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. John fifteen sixteen just very aptly and succinctly describes it. You did not choose me, but I choose you. That passage of scripture is really powerful, and you know the one we opened up with in First John four nineteen. I'll be repeating it throughout this this session. But we love because He first loved us. Um, our love for God is because He first loved us. It's very important to get that order right um, in understanding our salvation. Now, the, the doctrine of election often raises two questions. The first one that jumps into people's mind is, is this fair? You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans, he anticipates this question in chapter 9 when he answers this way. Look at Romans 9, 19 through 21. One of you will say to me, then, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? What? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? God doesn't owe any man a chance. God owes man nothing but death. The only thing we're owed is justice. What we're owed from God is wrath for our sins by nature. Um, God was not obligated to save any of us. It's very important to to know that because if we understand that, it's going to cause us to grow in our love and our amazement at God, our amazement at His grace. You'll grow so much in your passion for the Lord when you understand that that God really doesn't owe us anything. Um. We never want to ask the Lord to give us what we deserve. Because if he treats us on the basis of what we deserve, we would all be in hell right now. And that's really what we deserve. But because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his plan of salvation, he has chosen to save some. And he's chosen to save you, beloved. Those of you who have believed in Jesus, He's chosen you in Christ from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And that's something to marvel at and to really thank God for. Um, So in election, God chooses to give some the justice they deserve for their sins, and he also chooses to give others mercy. However, he never acts unjustly or unfairly toward anyone. That's really important. The real wonder of election is not that God would not choose some, but that God would choose anyone. I listened to this quote. This one's really affected me in my Christian life um, because it deals with this issue of fairness and the struggle we can have when we think about um, the doctrines of grace. Uh, This is from a man named Mark Webb. He writes, After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein, you misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door and God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you, and you, but not you, etc. The situation's hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men without exception are running in the opposite direction toward hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one and this one over here and that one over there. And affectionately draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there. But it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. That kind of response, grounded as I believe it is in scriptural truth, does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? If you perish in hell, blame yourself, as it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God, for that is entirely his work. To him alone belong all praise and glory, for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. Salvation really is all of grace from start to finish, brothers and sisters. And to remember that important hinge verse that we started with in first John four nineteen. We love because He first loved us. Let's look at this uh, doctrine of calling. Um, God ensures that those he chooses will also freely choose him. Um, This is an important point. You know, the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation or the doctrine of election and predestination doesn't mean that man is not responsible. Man is responsible. Um, It's important to note that in the scriptures, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are taught side by side, and they're never seen as contradictory. They're they're taught as compatible with each other. They're compatible perfectly. Um, they're not in opposition to one another. They're not enemies. Both truths that God is sovereign and man is responsible are taught side by side in the scriptures. But it's important to note that um, you know George Mueller, who ran a, an orphanage in England in the 1800s, he was a mighty man of prayer. He had Christians who kind of were on both sides of the equation: some who accented God's sovereignty, others who accented human responsibility. And he wanted to know where Scripture placed the accent in the Scriptures as a whole. So he read Genesis through Revelation. He every verse that talked about God's sovereignty and salvation, he'd put a mark next to it. And then every scripture that talked about human responsibility, he put a mark next to it, and he kind of wanted to tally it up and see what the whole of scripture kind of accented. And what Mueller found, and this is what I found in my own personal study of God's word as well, is that both are taught in the scriptures. So it's very important to note that God is sovereign and man is responsible. But the proportion that Mueller found was that the accent was four to one in favor of God's sovereignty and salvation being emphasized as opposed to human responsibility being emphasized. And so it's an important principle we need to think of in relation to Scripture is not just like what does one verse say, but what does all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation say about a particular topic in relation to salvation it teaches that both God is sovereign over our salvation; He's foreknew us, He predestined us, He elected us. Um, but it also teaches us that we must believe, we must repent, we must turn from our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior in order to be saved. And so, and and we're responsible for that. And so um, that helps us because you know we know then that you know um, our actions really do matter. You know we're not uh robots or you know we really are called to respond and and really act with our will to really believe in Christ and turn from our sin and and even as we share the gospel with others and even as we think of praying to God all of those things matter because um human responsibility human responsibility really does matter our our prayers matter our our uh, evangelism and reaching out to the lost matters um, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So we need to make sure that we never accent God's sovereignty so much so that we, we kind of just dismiss human responsibility, but we also don't want to accent human responsibility so much that we don't just take comfort in God's sovereignty. The ratio of four to one I think is a good one, and Scripture places accent on the sovereignty of God in our salvation. And This calling section here emphasizes... Um, you know, God's calling of us. And so let's look at that in more detail. In the natural, this is impossible because we're dead in sins and we're unwilling and unable to respond to the gospel. The Bible tells us that that kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. And he is the one who opens our hearts to believe. So the phrase is in Scripture, he opens our hearts, he He uh, enables our repentance, he grants unto us repentance, um, Acts 11 talks about, in Acts 13, says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So you see that they were already appointed for eternal life, but they believed, they responded to the gospel call. The gospel was preached, and when the Gentiles heard it in Acts 13, when Paul was preaching the gospel, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord, and that mattered to God. They responded. They believed, but what's beautiful is it talks about that they were appointed for eternal life. Only because of our election and God's preeminent grace, grace that comes before, are we able and willing to repent of sin, believe the gospel, and serve the Lord. That's right. We've been born again, and, and we've been... Uh, Born again to a living hope, we've been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. Look at the quote by Bruce Milne. Regeneration marks the moment and the means of our coming into union with Christ. It is an instantaneous change from spiritual death to spiritual life, a spiritual resurrection through regeneration. The believer receives a new spiritual nature. We looked at that in our last session, which will express itself in new concerns and interests. Look at R.C. Sproul's quote. The spirit recreates the human heart, quickening it it from spiritual death to spiritual life. Regenerate people are new creations where formerly they had no disposition, no inclination or desire for the things of God. Now they are disposed and inclined toward God. In regeneration, God plants a desire for himself in the human heart that otherwise would not have been there. And it's true. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See that language there, the way it talks about salvation, that God's going to do this. God's going God's to remove the heart of stone inside of us and give us a heart of flesh. And that's what happened in my life when Jesus saved me. And that's what happened in your life as well. Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. We didn't make ourselves alive. God made us alive. And so you sometimes hear the illustration of salvation. It's almost like there's somebody drowning in the water and, you know, God throws out a lifeline and then the description's more like we're in the water, God's in the boat and he throws the lifeline and then we kind of grab the lifeline and we, 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 we then we're pulled in and God saves us. But there's a lot of emphasis there just that we're, we, you know, we grab the lifeline and but it's important to note that we didn't have any life within us. We were spiritually dead. It, it, we weren't just drowning. We were completely dead in sin. So what's needed in order for any of us to be saved is resurrection life, quickening from the dead. Um, and so it's the illustration is better to, to talk about it in this way. We were at the bottom of the ocean, dead in our sin, heading for hell. And when God saved us and made us alive together with Christ, what he did is he, he brought us up from the depths of the ocean and all the darkness and the death of our sin. And he caused us to be born again and he He saved us. He made us alive together with Christ. And, and oh, brothers and sisters, That's the reason we're on the boat. It's not because I saved myself. God saved me. And he opened up my eyes. He raised me from the dead. And once I was regenerated and born again, I I willingly repented and believed. And But it's all because of his grace. There's no credit that I get for my own salvation, that I was smarter or I was more intelligent or I was more of a moral guy. Um, or that you were more of a moral guy or girl, um, that's not the reason you're saved. The reason we're saved is by the mercy and grace of God alone. And we really have experienced a miracle. We've been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And do you see your salvation that way? Do you see your Christian life that way? I really pray you do, because you will be one of the most passionate worshipers of Jesus if you really see your salvation as God brought me up from the depths and saved me. And I love him because he first loved me. John 3.3 3 says, um, In reply Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Titus three four and 5, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And that's what this is talking about, this doctrine of calling. That, you know, we are called by God. And we hear the gospel call when the gospel is proclaimed to us. And we hear about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. The Lord opens up our eyes and we are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And we are called. And then we We freely choose him. But it's important to note even in our choosing of the Lord through repentance and in faith that it's God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. And that's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. God gets all the credit for why we're saved and why we're Christians. Sinclair Ferguson writes, We rarely take this teaching that man cannot enter the kingdom of God sufficiently seriously because perhaps because it cuts from under our feet the last vestiges of our natural self-sufficiency. It highlights the biblical teaching that our salvation is all of grace. The one thing necessary is the one thing we ourselves cannot perform. That's so true. We cannot save ourselves. All whom God calls will eventually come to him freely. God's grace to us is, in the end, irresistible. Anthony Hokema writes, The grace of God may indeed be resisted, but it will not be successfully resisted by those whom God has chosen in Christ to salvation from the creation of the world. That's right. You know, many are called, but few are chosen, the scriptures say. But when God calls you and says, like he did to Lazarus when he was Lazarus when he was in the grave, Lazarus, come forth he came forth from that grave and that's how it was with us you know we can kind of sometimes you know throughout our unbelieving lives you know just we can look back and remember times when jesus was standing on the door knocking we just blew him off and but when god when god purposes to save us and when he purposed to save us there was no way we could resist it. we were we just were raised to new life and, and joyfully and willingly submitted our hearts to him. Um, Herman, Herman Baving said, God's effectual calling is so powerful that it cannot be conquered and yet so loving that it excludes all force. That's true. Yeah, God doesn't just take you over. He, I love the phrase, he makes you willing to come. And so we come, and that's what we're often mindful of. I came, I I repented, I believed, I I followed Jesus. But we really never would have followed Jesus if it wasn't for the the amazing and irresistible grace of God. If he didn't open up our eyes, we never would have seen him. We never would have seen our need for him. And this is a beautiful truth. Let's look at part two. Um, We act because God has acted. And that's the doctrine of conversion. So the first one there, when we looked at foreknowledge, um, predestination, election, um, calling, these were all God's saving acts, and um, then it accented God's responsibility in our salvation. Here, conversion talks about um, our responsibility, and God's active in our conversion, but um, it, it this accents repentance and faith. So let's look at this together. Um, Wayne Grudem says, Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Although repentance and faith are spoken of separately, they always work together in conversion. There's no repentance without faith and no faith without repentance. John Murray writes, The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith. And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. Isn't that great? It is impossible to disentangle faith and repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with faith. Um, Let's look at the doctrine of repentance. Uh, Repentance means to turn about, to return, to turn back. To sin is to rebel against God and his plans for our life, and we've all sinned. To repent is to turn back to God and to embrace him and his plans for our life. All men are commanded by God to repent and believe in the gospel. That's what it says in Acts 17. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Repentance has three aspects. Let's look at those. A, an intellectual aspect. It's a knowledge of God's holiness, our sin, and God's mercy, readiness to forgive. Um, There's also um, an emotional aspect. Uh, it's a heartfelt sorrow for sin. And I just want to appeal to all of us, let's grow in looking and seeing our sin against God and having a heartfelt sorrow for it. Sin really did grieve and pain God's heart. God was affected by my rebellion and your rebellion. And um, it's important for us to have a heartfelt sorrow about that. It's good, it's healthy. To feel that way, um, and then also there's a volitional aspect. Um, there's a willingness and a steadfast purpose to turn away from all sin and to turn to God. Um, in First John, uh, in First John, it talks about how that no one who has been saved makes a practice of sinning. I like that phrase, a practice of sinning. As a Christian, will still struggle with indwelling sin. Even all the way till the day we die, you know, we'll still sin. But a true Christian hates that they still sin. And um, a true Christian also um, really shows a willingness and a steadfast purpose to turn away from all sin and to turn to God. A Christian doesn't live in sin. Um, They turn away and they live in the direction of righteousness but they still stumble sometimes into sin, but their direction has changed away from sin and to righteousness. J.I. Packer says, the New Testament word for repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed. And one's whole life is lived differently. The, The change is radical. It's both inward and outward. Repentance means starting to live a new life. So repentance is really a beautiful thing, and it's it's... You know, we're not supposed to pine over you know what it costs us to give up in order to be a Christian, but we really should be eager to do whatever it takes to turn away from that which broke God's heart in order to gain Christ forever and to see that sin is worthless compared to the glorious and infinite blessing of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. Repentance is a gift from God. It's, a, it's God's grace and enables us to repent. Here's a couple of good scriptures on that, that um, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel in Acts 5. And in, in 2 Timothy 2.25 says, Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance. So repentance is a gift, and repentance is a blessing. Our sin, while momentarily pleasurable, ultimately causes us nothing but grief and pain. To turn from it is to turn from the terrible consequences it brings and to find increasing joy and fulfillment in following God. In Isaiah it says the way of the transgressor is hard. Um, in Acts 3.19 it says repent then and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And repentance brings so much blessing. Times of refreshing from the Lord. Um, and sin really leads to misery And no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You know, and so I want to urge all of us as we're going through this new members course and we're contemplating, you know, really counting the cost of following Jesus. If you're living in a lifestyle of sin still, I really want to appeal to you as, as a friend, but also as, as a pastor to, to turn from your sin, turn away from your old life in order to live for Christ. And that, that's going to cost you. Sometimes it costs you something really dear, something that you love, something that you value so much. Um, but we're called to turn away from all that Scripture forbids and in turn to pursue all that Scripture commands when we come to know Christ. Let's look at uh, the second part of conversion. We looked at the first part, repentance. The second part is faith. Over and over again, we've seen that righteousness, justification, et cetera, come to us through faith. Faith is the instrument through which the saving benefits of the cross become ours. It's it's both a gift of God and an act of our will. God gives us faith, and we are responsible for exercising it. And as a gift, you see in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, it's, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And we talked about this, that God has designed our salvation to to really exclude human boasting. And that's to the praise of his glorious grace. He wants his glorious grace to be praised for why we are Christians and not for us to look in the mirror and think, well, it was because I was a better person. Um, And so we really want to empty ourselves out of that thought because it's just not true. We want to really believe God's word. We're not good people. We really are sinners who, all of us, have been saved by the mercy and grace of God. Um, Let's look at faith defined. The New Testament word for faith, when used in the context of salvation, means a true commitment of self to God, an unwavering trust in his promises and a persistent fidelity and obedience. Saving faith has three elements. A, knowledge. We must have facts revealed to us. Um, Romans 10, 14, and 17, how then can they call on one they have not believed in? People need to hear the gospel in order to believe in Christ. They need to hear about Jesus and what he did on the cross, and, and we needed to hear about Jesus and what he did on the cross in order to believe in him. And so we need to know the facts of the gospel, which we've looked at in the previous sessions. And um, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word, of Christ. So that's part A, knowledge. We must have the facts revealed to us. Secondly, assent. We must believe that what is revealed, oh, the message that is given, is true. Hebrews 4.2 For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. You know, it's possible to hear the message of the gospel, and sometimes even to hear it for a very long time. To even go to church and hear it, to be a church goer, and yet not be truly saved, and the reason is because those who do that they hear it, but they don't combine it with faith. We must have personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves in order to be saved. Um, someone else in our family being a Christian isn't going to save us. We need to believe in Jesus for ourselves. We all we will all stand before the Lord on the day of judgment alone, and so we really need to personally believe in Him ourselves. I pray that that you do that. Um, And and one of the things we are burdened about, even in the new members interview that comes up at the end, for those of you who want to become members, is that that's what we really want to look into. Is just for us to hear your testimony, and we wanna we wanna see that that we know you will have by that time heard the gospel, but did you combine it? With faith, have you personally believed in Christ as your own Lord and Savior? Do you love Him in that way? And do you trust Him? And that's the third point here, trust. We must stake our life on it as proven by our obedience, trust, and commitment. That's so true. We need to trust in the Lord. James 2, 17 through 22. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. You see that His faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Um, We need to really trust and stake our whole life on the gospel. As uh, one Christian said, we need to lean our full weight upon the Lord and um, really, you know, embrace the cost of being a Christian and to really completely just, you know, like, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, just sell everything you have and and give it all away and, and then come and follow me. And there's got to be that type of heart where we're willing to just to to sell everything we have, to give everything up from our old life and to turn away from our old life and follow Christ and turn to him wholeheartedly with our new life of faith and trust in him and to rely on him completely and to live a life now of obedience and commitment to the Lord. And I ask you, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to lay it all down for Christ in order to follow him and trust in him completely as your only hope of salvation? Point two in relation to this is we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. I love that phrase. True saving faith will always lead to a life of obedience We do not simply commit ourselves to Jesus as our Savior, but to Jesus as our Lord. Since the essence of sin is rebellion against God's rule in our life, the essence of saving faith and repentance is the total acceptance of and committal to His rule and authority. No one can rightfully say, Jesus is my Savior, who does not also say, Jesus is my Lord. No one will receive the benefits of salvation without also accepting the responsibilities of discipleship. We really do need to follow Jesus and to give our heart wholeheartedly over to him. Having said this, we must also be careful to say, and this is important, that while obedience will inevitably follow faith, it's never the basis of our justification. This is good news. Our obedience never has and never will add anything to the work of the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. It is finished. But when you believe in Jesus' finished work on the cross and you're justified, it, and you truly are a believer, inevitably, always, it's followed by a life of obedience to the Lord. Not perfect obedience, but obedient, obedience nonetheless. Um, there's, there's times where you'll still stumble and fall, but, but a true Christian will get back up again and continue to follow Righteousness and holiness and pursue Christ. So that's really an important, important point. It's not enough just to be a moral person. We really need to believe in Jesus Christ and to, to do good and to be good for Him and for His glory and to make that our motive. God cares about our heart that we do these things for Him. Luke 9 is a great passage. Then he said to him, well, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you see that? It's a daily walk, following Jesus. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life from me will save it. We're called to lose our life and completely, wholeheartedly give ourselves over to the Lord and trust him in that way. Faith is a gift from God. It's not a meritorious work. Um, it's important to know that it really is a gift. Like we looked at in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And in Hebrews twelve two, 2, um, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the author. He's the perfecter of our faith. I love this quote by Warfield. This is important. It's not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. I love that. We could not more radically misconceive it than by transferring to faith, even the smallest fraction of that, saving energy, which is attributed in the scripture solely to Christ himself. That's right. Christ saves you. Christ saves me through faith. So it's Christ that saves, not my faith, but Christ saves me through believing in him. Though you responded to his initiative, even that response was made possible by what he had already done in your life. Steve Shanks said, God deserves all the credit. And um, we have a water baptism addendum. That anybody who truly believes in Christ and becomes a Christian, we ask, you know, if you haven't been water baptized as a believer, um, we'd like to ask you to really pray and consider um, being baptized, being water baptized and publicly declaring to the world, to the church, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and um, that you love him now because he first loved you and uh, we, we love the uh, sacraments in the church the first being water baptism which is when you first become a Christian and then in our church we celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly where we remember the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave up his life for us and so this concludes session four at this time let's pray God, thank you so much for first loving us. How can we thank you enough, Lord God, for taking the initiative to such sinners who deserved your wrath? And instead, Lord, you have chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. You have foreknown us. You've known us and loved us beforehand. Before we were in our mother's womb, you knew us. Lord, you chose us in Christ, you elected us, you predestined us to be adopted as your sons, as your daughters. Lord God, we owe our salvation to you. We boast in you, in the cross, and not in ourselves, not in our own merit. And I pray that we would be more amazed by your grace, and that you would grant unto every one of us in this class, Lord Repentance and faith in you. I pray that no one in the hearing of this teaching going forth into membership in our church would be one of those that Hebrews talked about who didn't combine their hearing with personal faith themselves. God, I pray that every hearer of this word would believe in you right now and would trust in you as their Lord and Savior and respond. To the gospel of grace. We love you. Amen.